All right, so this is, uh, my name is Bill. This is Nonprofit Tangent, uh, where we cover nonprofits in New York City and their stories. And uh, today, I am joined by an old friend of mine uh, and an old colleague of mine, JP. Welcome, JP. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me, and uh, great to be working with you again. Yeah, so again. Like, <laughs> this seems like fun. This doesn't, oh, that's good. Uh, so JP and I uh, used to work together at a high school and uh, used to teach together. JP, you eat, correct? I do eat. All right, so you are qualified to discuss the food episode. So today we're talking about uh, <laughs> nonprofits that um, have some relation to food, and it can be everything from just purely... The sort of sustenance side of food all the way to the sort of more cultural and community sides of of food so that's it and you actually before you were just telling me you had your family has a little bit of experience in the food industry this is true that actually starts with my mother who is a wonderful cook and her brilliance uh at a stove and baking and cooking and prepping big meals has rubbed off on my brother who now is the executive chef at a restaurant uh new restaurant in manhattan um, he's, helping, oh, really? he's helping to open a couple others, yeah. Oh, cool. What's it called? The re- restaurant is called Empeon. Empeon. Yep, and he oversees a couple of them in the city. Nice. Variations of the uh, of the flagship, but yeah. All right. That's cool. So this episode, I'm going to play an interview from someone who their entire... There's an entire restaurant within their nonprofit. There's an organization that operates schools in rural Africa and is putting together a cooking kind of all-star team for their annual fundraiser. Um, but we're going to first start with an organization called One Sandwich at a Time that helps get groups together into basically, I don't know, I guess I would describe them almost as sandwich factories uh, where they just make lots and lots of sa- sandwiches and distribute them to homeless shelters and homeless people around the city. Got it. Um, so here is uh, One Sandwich at a Time. All right. I am here with Aaron Dinan, uh, co-founder of One Sandwich at a Time, and you're going to tell us a little bit about the organization. Um, I will say, I don't know that I've ever seen, so following you on Instagram, or the organization on Instagram, I've never seen so many people have so much fun <laughs> making sandwiches. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's a real competitive category, having fun making sandwiches, but like... <laughs> I was really looking forward to this interview because it looks like you guys have a really good time with what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, what does One Sandwich at a Time do? Like, what's the, what do you guys do? So we are, we're a pretty um, grassroots nonprofit organization. We have a simple name, simple mission. Um, our mission is to combat hunger and homelessness by encouraging and reminding others that they can create change and they're empowered to create change with their own two hands. So we say that it's the simple action of making a sandwich that has that larger impact of feeding someone in need. I love the story kind of how this started in a train station, right? This it got started in a train station. Yeah. So, so walk us through that story. What was going on? What yeah. Um, so just to kind of um, give some info on what led to the train station, I had moved to New York. I'm not, I'm not from New York originally, and I was living um, up in Westchester. And um, so I, I took the Metro North. That was my... Um, my access into the city and I was working as a photographer and I loved it I enjoyed it I loved the the art scene in New York but I was um, sort of looking for a way to use my camera for good 
and sort of remove myself from from the ego um, in the art world. And um, I was racing to catch a train one night um, in Grand Central. It was the last train of the night, which I think is like the 1 a.m., 1.04 a.m. train. So I really needed to catch that train. <laughs> and I hadn't eaten dinner, so I was really hungry. So I, I, I had about a minute to spare. So I, I um, ran into one of the cafes there and grabbed a sandwich. And as I was running to catch the train, I made eye contact with um, a man who I assumed um, was homeless. And it was such a powerful interaction because we didn't really say a word to each other. We just made eye contact standing right across from each other. And I gave him, I had my sandwich and I just gave it to him. I gave him half and I I said, you know, here. Mm -hmm. And um, it was this, it's odd because it was such a simple action, but the moment that we made that eye contact and I could see the gratitude on his face was something that I will never forget. And that man to this day, because I had said a prayer um, asking for for guidance um, into how to kind of use my camera for change. And um, I say that that man was maybe an angel because um, it was that that simple idea. So from that moment, I then, uh, when I'd come into the city, I'd bring my backpack and I'd pack sandwiches with me, individually wrapped. Um, and I, I would give them to people who I passed on the streets. And my goal was to speak with whoever would want to maybe share their story with me. So sit down, speak with them, create some sort of photojournalism project about homelessness, um, and then give them a sandwich to thank them, to let them know that they're seen, and to help them at least make it to their next meal. So I realized that I was uh, trying to survive in New York City, which is really hard, or in New York, and um, at least I could do what I could do um, to help someone make it to their next meal. So that sort of led to to the founding of One Sandwich at a Time. I I, I started telling my friends about my, my sandwich project and it really became a part of me. I had an art opening at this incredible gallery and they let me speak um, about my sandwich project, which was really cool. So we raised uh, some money for our 501c3, and people supported it, and um, we became a nonprofit. And thanks to our co-founder, George Contogianis, he's a very logical thinker. And he, he said, Aaron, you should really look into making this a, a 501c3, a nonprofit, because then you'll have a greater impact um, out there in the world. And thus became one sandwich at a time. To him, I credit the name. He thought of the name, and I thought it was cheesy. And now I always thank him for That's the cool. name. No, it's yeah. a great name. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's cool. How, how long ago was that? So we actually, I started making the sandwiches in 2010. We became a nonprofit September of 2011. So we've actually been around for seven years, but we've really, we've really grown um, tremendously, thankfully, um, in the last two years. So the first few years, it was fun, though. I mean, we were still kind of learning how how we can help those in need, how to spread our mission. We'd work for months for one sandwich-making event. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were fun. I mean, they, they were always fun. But we would maybe make 300 sandwiches. Once I had a jazz band play at one of our events, I approached a man on the subway platform who was playing saxophone. And I, I said, hey, you're amazing. Would you like to play at our charity event? <laughs> so we worked really hard for our, our events. And that's something um, that I, I really want to focus on. And exactly what you said when you started out is I really want giving back to be fun. I want it to be fun, easy, memorable, because it's that beginning 
uh, action of that ripple effect. It's like throwing the stone into the lake and that hopefully will create that first impact, which will then create a ripple effect to change. Like maybe a volunteer will leave our event with a sandwich or they'll, when they pass someone in need, they'll be more aware of it. They'll recognize that shared humanity with another human and they'll want to, to help them. And so I say if we've fed one person or inspired one person, then we've created change out there. Right. And so part of this organization is also not only are you making sandwiches that you bring to the homeless people, but it is also on the other side, you have sandwich making events, which you kind of hinted at here, which is you get like I've seen on the Instagram, I've seen like kids making sandwiches. And I mean, so maybe just tell us a little bit about like that. I feel like that's the other half of this is is getting together people to actually make the sandwiches. It's like a whole thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And what we have found, and I think that's why we've kind of grown um, so organically the way we have, is that people want to give back. They, they want to, to help you know, those in need, but oftentimes they don't really know how to. And um, it is easy to, to, the easiest way is to financially donate to a nonprofit, but oftentimes that isn't as rewarding. And so our goal is we try to make it as easy as possible for people to show up, they put on their hairnets and gloves, and then all of a sudden they're a part of this incredible community and they're giving back. We've had, um, we'd have, we've had four-year-olds making sandwiches with their parents. It's incredible. We've had um, people bring their grandparents to events. We have worked with schools um, to, to kind of educate a, about food insecurity with the kids, make the sandwiches, and then we all um, sort of do a field trip down to a soup kitchen where they can actually hand the sandwich to someone in need. And those events are, are really beautiful because um, I love working with kids when because they're at that age where you can't, they're you can open them their eyes and to to mm -hmm. people in need that there's a need out there right so, so over the last uh, you know six or seven years of, of being a nonprofit what are some of your what are the some of the standout memories your your favorite uh, things you think about um, we had an event with the Brooklyn Cyclones which was really fun and the team came so it was wow. the Brooklyn Cyclones okay. community and then the baseball players came and everyone just joined together making sandwiches we had a mother with two small boys there and they just loved it they loved making the sandwiches they loved standing next to their hero mm -hmm. uh, one of the baseball players making sandwiches and that was really fun we played music that was right. a really like a that. really fun event and then we also had an event recently with a school in manhattan um age four uh age four through six and it was a class of about 40 kids and it was so much fun everyone they were these little kids had all their hair nets and gloves and their aprons on and uh we all we everyone held their hands up in the air and we did a countdown like five, four, three, two, one, go! And then all the kids jumped in. It was chaotic and messy, but it was so much fun. That's that was great. yeah. We've had so many, we've had so many great memories. Last December, we had for our volunteers in our community, we had a, a, a holiday party. So that was really fun. Everyone wore their favorite in in lieu of a hairnet. Everyone wore like a holiday hat and holiday apron, and we had Christmas music playing. That was really neat. Also, yeah, I bet. All right, yeah. cool. Um, and one of the things that you told me um, when, we, when we first started speaking was that, part, I guess if it's part of the mission or, or something that you kind of have come across in doing this is the idea that um, it really, meeting homeless people has really broken stereotypes of what you, I don't know if you, but I think what the average person thinks of in, when they think of homeless people. Um, so what are some of the, uh, um, what are the, some of the more memorable 
people that you've met that you've given sandwiches to or worked with on on the homeless and um, that kind of break down that that stereotype of a homeless person? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that I could speak about forever because that is something that has changed my life. And um, it's it's sort of what keeps the fire going to, to run uh, one sandwich at a time is when you connect with the people that you feed. It's the people that we meet. I, I just tell everyone they're just incredible. And we've heard these remarkable stories. And there there is this, a, there's a big misconception with hunger and homelessness and oftentimes it isn't that evident. We had an event recently, um, a team building event with a company and it was for their employees and someone at the end pulled me aside and said that they were actually homeless. They were, they didn't, they were evicted, um, they were sleeping in their car and when I heard that, I, it really was eye-opening because you, you oftentimes don't think that maybe there's a volunteer here that has been homeless in the past or is currently homeless. So it hits home, I think, for for a lot of people. They say that seven to 10 Americans are one paycheck away from actually being homeless, which is which is huge. Um, So there there is there's a lot of it's it's close to home. But some of the people that we've we have given sandwiches to, they've become dear friends and they now volunteer with us. And there's one man, and I always tell this story, um, we met him at a shelter. We had distributed the sandwiches to the shelter and there's a chapel next door and he was praying inside and, and we just started speaking to him. It was a friend of mine um, and me that were there and he was very honest with his story. He had been on the streets, I think for 40, 40 plus years. And he was he had a, a pretty rough childhood and he was he was very honest with his um, th- that he had been on drugs and he nearly overdosed I want to say he did I don't know if he was if the doctors actually pronounced him dead but they they revived him and they told him that they were all they told him he was a miracle and um, he said that was the closest you know to come so close to, to death was an eye-opener for him and I remember when we met him, he had just entered this um, shelter and he had really nothing with him. And he said, I, I've got my life back. I'm the richest man alive. And every time we see him to this day, he says he's walking on clouds. And it's and to see him, he, he went through the program. He has a job. He's back with his wife. He's in his apartment. It's unbelievable. And to, to just call him a friend and... Um, it's it's really been a, a beautiful it's been beautiful to watch his journey and it's it's hard because and this is another topic but what it's difficult to exit the cycle of homelessness the goal is obviously not to reach that that point because once you are on the street it's very very difficult um, and it takes a lot of, of people to to help you um, on that that journey out of homelessness so we're we're doing our part we're doing the best we can to at least let them know um, that they're seen and they're cared about and um, to nourish the body is obviously the the, I think the first step Um, once you're nourished then you can think of the next the next steps ahead right what is your this uh, this is a Especially in light of the, that touching story, it's such a stupid question, but what, is the, what are the sandwiches of choice? I, it, oh, that's I, a great question, no, actually. It, I, no, it is a good question. It's just a terrible timing. That's a, that's a question 
I should have asked 10 minutes ago. It's okay, but ironically, <laughs> there's a good reason for the sandwiches that we make. So we used to make a variety of sandwiches. We used to, um, in the beginning days, we would, we would wash our lettuce and tomato and cut it you know, into slices and worked really hard for, to make these amazing, um, tasty meat, cheese, uh, lettuce, tomato, mustard sandwiches, which we, we still do. We're doing with a, a company next week. But ironically, the sandwich that we make, I'd say 95% of the time is peanut butter and jelly. And there's a reason for that. So peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are the most requested sandwich from the individuals that we feed. And it's been really beautiful to see that there's this emotional component to PB&J. It's almost like a childhood. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, I think we can all relate to it in a way. And then oftentimes the individuals whom we feed do not have their full sets of teeth. So the PB&J is very soft and it lasts longer, especially oh, wow. in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes uh, the individuals we feed will take a few uh, sandwiches with them and so maybe they'll have it for breakfast the next morning or you know later that night so they last much longer right and they're fun to make so on the side of the volunteers <laughs> pb and j's are very fun to make right yeah a little messy but... yeah exactly okay. yep and we sort of do like an assembly line so it's a teamwork so you've mm-hmm. got one person peanut butter spreader one jelly and then they'll kind of pass it down to the person who's the bagger so it's nice to see especially for our team building events with our, our corporate events Sometimes you'll have people standing next to each other that maybe sit next to each other but have never actually met or gotten a chance to hang out in this sort of light. So they then form a new friendship. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. So I want to get back to, because uh, uh, I feel like you must have a million stories about different people you met. Can you tell us about a different, uh, another person that uh, you met or handed a sandwich to that yeah, kind of um, was memorable? We call him Brother Philip. And my friend Stephanie and I, she runs a nonprofit in Orlando. And we partner. She's always in New York. We partner on a pretty regular basis. We walked um, into a park near Chelsea with sandwiches. And there, were, uh, there was a group of three men. And we approached them with a sandwich. And um, this man nearly started, he started tearing up. He said, we were just praying for food. We were just, we had, we, they had missed, um, the, there's an afternoon, like a soup kitchen program in that area, but they had just missed it. Um, and they hadn't eaten and they had been praying. And here we came with sandwiches and we sat down with them. And we, we call him Brother Philip because he, he was um, preaching. The, the gospel and singing and just so full of faith and joy and love and hearing his story was incredible and to this day I often visit brother Philip even if I'm like if 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 I'm feeling down I'll go and sit with brother Philip and it's incredible because he's become a friend of mine oh wow yeah yeah, yeah you must uh, I mean um when you walk around the city at this point, you just kind of know like a lot of people. And yeah, just, and like, the, <laughs> wherever you go, you're kind of like yeah. waving. It's and, really cute, actually, because um, usually I've got my big hat on, like in the sun, and um, they're like, "Oh, it's the sandwich girl." <laughs> I'm just the, the sandwich girl. So I, usually every day, even now, I've got bars in my backpack with me that I'll hand out um, today, later right. today. Uh, yeah, so it's it, I, I do see a lot of the same. Uh, people and they know me by name and I know them by name and it's it's really cool. Right. 
Um, cool. Is there any other any other memorable moment that you can think of, either from the sort of the sandwich making side of things or the sandwich distributing side of things that kind of jumps out to you? Yeah, there's. We worked with a school about two years back, and um, we made sandwiches with them. Their agenda for the week was all about food insecurity and hunger and homelessness. And then we came and made sandwiches, and then took the subway together, where they handed out sandwiches at a soup kitchen. And I had seen. Uh, the one of the mothers of the students like a week later and she approached me and said I really want to thank you because um, that night at dinner our our daughter she was like seven maybe um, told us that her new goal in life is to end hunger and when no, her no. mother told me that I thought okay we, we have done our job we have succeeded because really it it's we say that hunger and homelessness is a it's an issue that requires collective impact. It's going to take a lot of people, a lot of hands, um, to come together to to end it. So that that's something that really sticks out to me. Right. But like really, that. every event we do, there's I, I have a joke with George because after every event, I'm like, "This was my favorite event." He's <laughs> <laughs> like, "Okay, Aaron, you say that after every event." So every event is great. We had an event last week with a company, and they were having, which you may have seen that on our Instagram, they're having a dance party. All I ever see so is just like fun. these people wearing all white, like <laughs> yeah. the, the white hats, the white gloves, and the white the something, the smock or whatever, and just like gigantic smiles on their faces. Yeah, it's so much fun right. it's, and it's such a again simple simple mission simple concept but um, hopefully it will create uh, an impact right okay great is there anything that uh, I haven't asked about but you think like oh, um, I wish Bill would ask about this because I'm about well we have one quote that we live by two quotes alright and so one is two I, again alright <laughs> I'm sorry uh, again I said one thing <laughs> greedy <laughs> Um, one is by Audrey Hepburn. We have two hands, one to help ourselves, the other to help others. And then another one, which I love, is by Margaret Mead. And it's never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. So we really thrive by those. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for, for taking a few thank minutes to talk with me. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you so much. That was uh, one sandwich at a time. Uh, what'd you think of them, JP? I'm inspired. I'm definitely oh, inspired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't help not be. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm, if you don't mind, I just want to start with something I imagine is elementary for your audience, and I'm sure for you. But like, you know, when I think of nonprofits, I think of uh, you know people and organizations providing for a need or a service that isn't being met by the government or by the market, and. As a New Yorker, you are as well, and I'm sure a lot of your audiences, you know, it's clear that there is a need to address homelessness here in our city. And um, I'm guilty of this, but many people inoculate themselves from that reality, even though we see it on our way to work, on our way to the store, when we leave our buildings, when we leave our homes. Uh, and tragically, too many of us accept it as reality. And it's amazing to me that Aaron was able to create something and do something so profound, but also so simple right. that uh, like she's meeting a clear need. We all know, we all say we recognize, and she did something about it, you know, heading home on a Metro North saying at 1 a.m. and it turned into something great. And it's 
impacted the lives of so many people, not just materially, or she's providing food for people who need it, but also she's inspiring others, clearly, you know, including the people that uh, she's serving. So I'm, I'm, I'm inspired. <laughs> and you were worried about not sounding intelligent. <laughs> that was all, yeah, no, that's, that's I think. first podcast appearance. <laughs> <laughs> knocking it out of the park. No, it's a, yeah, she steers right into that. I think that's the typical, like, New Yorker thing. I think inoculation is the perfect way to say it, right? We always just, like, head down, headphones in, like, anything you can do to not see it in quotes, right? And she, like, she did the opposite. She exactly. did the non-New Yorker thing. We just steered right into it, and it spawned this whole thing. What I also really appreciate about Erin in One Sandwich at a Time is its origin story, which you guys started with. And she's at this train, 1 a.m., and her interest, her ambition is to be a photographer and essentially, as she said, I think, use her camera for change. But she didn't feel bound by her interest in being a photographer, you know? And that interest in being a photographer quickly transferred into this uh, this nonprofit one sandwich at a time when she realized like, oh, that's what I can do for change. And I'm confident that she's still using her camera for good. You talked about her awesome Instagram, for, for example, but you know, it didn't, her, her interest in photography didn't translate directly into, you know, what most of us would think someone who studies or cares about photography would become. It became this amazing organization. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've listened to this interview now a few times just through the editing process, and I think something that I'm taking away even now after listening to several times is I think the initial thing, the surface level thing is certainly like, oh, they're, they are feeding the homeless, and that's the organization, but there is a big humanizing of the homeless element to this as well, which I think is something that I certainly knew about, but I, I, it came out to me a little bit more clear. This, this run-through of the interview, I think... Um, there is a real humanizing element, a real discussion about, you know, who these sandwiches are helping. It's there's a, I think that's a big part of what she does. So people don't walk away having made a sandwich that someone eats. I think people walk away having changed a little bit about. I mean, she talked about that little girl, right? So the people walk away having a, a little bit of a different sense of, of homelessness, right? So there's an educational and awareness raising issue that comes out of this. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that we were teachers and, I, you know, I've had students who have experienced it and they live with families and they've been without a home for a period of time and now they're back in it. But and so I think, I think as significant as it is that people are fed and nourished and healthy, it's also important to just change our own minds and our attitudes about who people who suffer from homelessness really are. Mm-hmm. All right. So I want to jump on to our, our next interview, which is with Executive Director of La Nacional, which is a restaurant which is in um, a benevolent society for uh, Spanish and, Hispan- and Spanish-speaking immigrants, basically. So he's going to kind of talk to us a little bit about the history of the society and then tell us a little bit about the restaurant. Right, Next thing to 
Benevolo Nacional with the Executive Director, Robert Sanfis, and the Spanish uh, Benevolent Society. That's right. Thank All you. right. Thank cool. you. So, um, this is actually a really interesting nonprofit because you have a restaurant, completely functioning restaurant as part of the nonprofit, and I think you are the oldest nonprofit I've ever interviewed. Or, well, we this year, uh, November 15th, we celebrate our 150th anniversary. Yeah, I think you're you're centuries ahead of anyone else I've uh, interviewed. How did the whole thing get started? You know, obviously, so there's no one around to talk to about the, 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 right, the, right. the starting, well, but... You know, and, and a little bit of our origins are, are, are cloudy, but what we do know is that it was very common for immigrant groups from whatever country that they came from to create benevolent societies. And essentially what they were is a house of respite, a house where people can come uh, when they just got off their boats from, you know, a month traveling overseas and, you know, coming to a brand new country where they didn't speak a word of the new language, where it was a completely overwhelming experience. So these benevolent societies were usually set up very close to where the boats docked. And it would be the very first place that they would walk into. So if you can imagine all of the, you know, desperate hearts that have come in here wondering how their new life would be, and La Nationale was a place that opened their door and said, hey, look, we have a room for you if you need it. Um, we have a meal downstairs in our restaurant if you're hungry. Uh, we have places where you can begin your job search. And we'll even let you borrow a suit if you need it for your first interview. Right. And that's the type of things that benevolent societies did. Now, as immigration from Europe started to change, most benevolent societies started to die out. Ours for whatever reason, I think a lot of it had to do because the first wave of Spanish immigration came during traditional European immigration, especially from Southern Europe, which was turned the last century. Uh, but Spain had something kind of tricky, and that's the Spanish Civil War. And our society, a lot of people who fled Spain during the Franco dictatorship, had kind of a renaissance, and probably our golden age was post-war here in the United States and post-Civil War in Spain. Uh, so around the 1950s is when this place was really at its apex. Hmm. Um, we probably had 8,000 members. Um, you name the person from Spain or the Spanish community, they were a member at some point. Um, at, uh, we had like the pilots and the president of Iberia. So we would charter five airlines every August to take most of our members back to Spain for the traditional vacation month of August and bring everyone back again. And, you know, it was, uh, it was really a thriving place. And as New York started to decline in the 60s and 70s, so did the society, so did the neighborhood, a neighborhood that was once very safe, uh, 14th Street near the Meatpacking District West Side. Just, it was a very turbulent time. And the society then entered a, a phase of decadence. Uh, entered a crisis phase and, you know, looked at many opportunities for several people who were running it to, to close it down or to sell it. And at the time, there really was no, no, no mechanism in place that discouraged people from selling because members could actually reap the benefits of any, any sale. We have since changed that and uh, hopefully we'll be around uh, for another 150 years. Right. So obviously the initial wave of immigration was from Europe. The, obviously there's a more recent wave of uh, Spanish-speaking immigrants from other countries. Is that, is that also we, helping? We, we certainly consider ourselves much, much more than just a Spanish society. We are very much a, a society for all Spanish speakers. And uh, our board 
word is a mix of all Spanish speakers. Um, our membership is a mix and people who utilize our space, even other cultural societies that might not have their own space. Um, for example, we rent that every year to the Cuban Cultural Society, um, Cuban Cultural Center, and they hold their uh, events here. Uh, we've had many events uh, for Mexican immigration, so you name it, and we, we very much consider ourselves connected to all Spanish peoples and the local community. So the society is now used um, as a place where we hold meetings for all the local unions, uh, the High Line up the block holds all of their employee um, functions here. Uh, it, the police department, you name it, and uh, you know we, we very much are uh, connected to our community. Right. So now tell me about the restaurant because uh, I actually had a salad there. Uh, I guess last week is when I first met you, and it was it was fantastic salad and the restaurant is beautiful and it's both 150 years old and completely brand new so right so what's the story behind the restaurant so bill i can tell you that i have been running this society for over 10 years and you know we need dreamers okay and uh i think the project was to open up our restaurant downstairs was certainly a dream and um and thank goodness we had them because if we didn't, it wouldn't be a reality. That said, it was an incredibly complicated two years to get that restaurant off the ground. So um, in the past, the society had, we've always had a restaurant downstairs, but it was closed only to members. And that was about the first 80% of the society existence. Then around the late 80s, the society decided to rent it out or kind of a vendor lease relationship. And it continued this way until about two years ago. Uh, we had rented out to Lolo Manso, who has gone on to open up a restaurant empire. So Lolo was a, was a typical Spanish immigrant. He came here in the uh, early 90s. Um, he came into the society the right place at the right time, and we gave him the lease. And he put us on the culinary map. The New York Times wrote him up as one of the best paillets in New York, if not the best. But we always knew that at the end of his lease, we would face one of those moments where where would be the future of our restaurant downstairs because the restaurant is the heart and soul of this society so we do some great work upstairs but it's hard for me to express just how much food is important in these type of functions so um we recognized that uh maybe instead of renting that again we had offers bill that you wouldn't believe people that had come to us and essentially you know as the executive director and, and our staff upstairs, it would have been much easier for us in retrospect to just say, sure, we'll take your big rent in this neighborhood. And, uh, but they had also made clear, if we do that, we are going to run the restaurant our way as a, as a private enterprise. Um, you know, this relationship with the community or with upstairs doesn't interest us. You will get a good rent from us. And I recognize that and I don't blame them for thinking that way. But um, it certainly didn't uphold the values of the society. Right. We decided, and it was, I remember the day that we all kind of sat down and voted on it, and we said, look, let's, let's go for it. Um, now, we are a benevolent society, okay? So what does that mean? You know, we have, thank God for the people in our past that actually purchased this building, because we're sitting on a, uh, you know, a building that's worth, you know, certainly upwards of $10 million. And, um, but instead of renting our rooms upstairs for $5,000 a month, which we can easily get, we often give them to artists and residents, we give them to our interns, and in this case, we're giving them to our chefs. So we're sponsoring their visas, we're sponsoring the visas of some of the top young chefs in Spain, doing from every different region. This particular year, they will be from the region of Valencia, uh, which specializes in arrozes, rices, uh, paellas. 
And, um, you know, uh, so when it came time to funding that project, it was not easy. It was not easy. It was a very tumultuous time financially. I get paid a very small stipend as executive director. I haven't paid myself in 19 months. Um, wow. that's, that's what it does. It was a complete sacrifice to make the restaurant happen. Um, and, I have, and I'm not alone. My staff upstairs, almost you know, 80% of the people who work upstairs are donating their time. And it's easy to do when you're doing it in the spirit of community, but the restaurant is a very, very complicated endeavor. So we were working in ways that we had never imagined to make it become a reality. And one of which was to make sure that we brought in the financing to have it, uh, to make it a reality. Um, you know, ultimately, and thank goodness, some of Spain's biggest companies stepped up for us. You know, 150 year old societies in, in the best neighborhood of the most important city in the world. Um, are not commonplace. Right. So thankfully, a lot of these companies did come to us. We had uh, Porcinosa, which is a huge tile maker. They donated all their tiles to us. Uh, we had great help from uh, anything from the Spanish beer companies to uh, uh, marble companies. All our designers are, are cutting edge young Spanish designers that all worked uh, for free to make it happen downstairs. Uh, our architects, uh, everyone, our lawyers, everyone who volunteers to make it happen. Um, and we even uh, counted on uh, David Villa, who is the huge Spanish soccer star, and he plays for the NYCFC. Okay. Um, he was their first ever captain and still plays for them. Uh, he had come here and really felt at home and recognized the benevolent nature of the society and has just moved, moved his offices upstairs and also uh, has been huge in, um, in, the, in the promotion of the restaurant. Right. And so, obviously, you guys are coming from a nonprofit side. Did anyone have any restaurant experience? I mean, like uh, building a restaurant right there, Bill. Is, in a way? Is, that's probably the best way to sum up how how kind of how difficult these past two years were. And it, it, we 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 don't, but we also were. You know, we kept pressing on. Just generally fear of failure. You know, like we we didn't want this 150 year old society to almost collapse under the weight of this restaurant. So we all put in much much more time than we would have just to make sure that we were doing things correctly because you're right again it was a dream project and when dreams hit reality it's always when it, things can get uh, messy but thankfully we, we really worked through it and in the end we relied on the generosity also of other restaurateurs no restaurateurs ever viewed us as competition mm -hmm. and i have always told them i said that this restaurant especially if they're from the spanish-speaking community um, that this restaurant and this society belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. There is no owner. That this belongs to all of us and the responsibility to keep a 150-year-old society belongs to everyone. And not even Spanish speakers, the local community as well. And when we were on the threat of closing 10 years ago, um, it was locals that stepped up too. No one wanted to see this place close. Um, and I'll even have a shout out to uh, the owner of Coppelia, uh, who, uh, Luis Skibar, um, he runs a incredibly, the most successful restaurant by far uh, here in the neighborhood, uh, um, and he has about eight other restaurants. And he not only served as an advisor, but donated a huge amount of money to make sure that we would recover our fireplace downstairs. So, you know, and at no point viewed us as competition. Instead, it was like, you know, I, I love your society. I love what you guys do. And here's a check. That's great. That's great. So when did when was the actual opening? Because it's now uh, beginning of August 2018. When was the we, actual, it, or was there a soft opening? Is this in the middle of the soft? We're opening? in the middle of a very soft opening, Bill. But I'll tell you this: um, 
I remember when we closed over two years ago. And again, since we were an experience, we were like, well, we can reopen again in six months. Um, right away that we had, we had found out that there was, you know, real structural issues with, uh, you know, this is a very old building. Mm-hmm. And so the minute you open up a wall, the minute you open up a floor. It's like being and, an old man and not going to the doctor for, for decades and then going because you have cold right. and all of a sudden. Now you can't ignore it. <laughs> now it, right? now you can't, when you see the real problems, you can't ignore them yeah. anymore. And so once we saw these, we, we knew right away that uh, we are not even going to come close to opening in six months. And I remember at that point, I took out a calendar and I said, look, here's the one thing we know we have to open up by. This place is known as the Mecca for the Spanish national soccer team. So, for example, when Spain won the World Cup in 2010, uh, the lines to get into this place were going down the corners to, to 7th and 8th Avenue and up to 15th Street. And it's just four hours before game time. So we knew that one of the ways that we would recoup our money, of course, was to have, you know, because we book upstairs, we book our rooms, you name it. Everybody comes here, they want to watch the national team. So I remember looking at the calendar and saying, well, the first game starts on June 15th. As of this year's World Cup. Of this year's World Cup. Okay. And uh, Bill, when do you think we opened? <laughs> wait, ju- wait, June 5th, you said? So June, June 15th. 15th. No, June, June 15th. 15th. We, we literally opened up... Uh, one hour before Spain kicked <laughs> off their World Cup. Um, and uh, of course, Spain crashed out early, but you know, in, in many ways, it, it kind of forced us to make sure that we opened up in time. Right. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, it is always helpful to have a deadline like that, right? Uh, that's for sure. That's for sure. Because, you know, it's funny, we, uh, we had the chefs and they kept saying to me, Robert, um, if you wait until the restaurant's ready, you will never open. <laughs> So at some point we knew that, look, we just got to open. Now right. that said, this is an extremely soft opening. Right. Because most of the people that man us downstairs, uh, even our service staff are people who volunteered here upstairs. We have incredible professionals in our kitchen. And thank God that was probably the best decision that, that we had ever made um, because the food is spectacular. Yeah, I can definitely speak to the salad. It was, it was so good that I, there's certain things that I can't eat, and usually if I taste something that's too good, I'm like, all right, there's something in here that actually I can't eat eating this sugar or something. But but yeah. it was, and I was I was like piecing through it a little bit, like what's going on in this salad? That what is Did it? You, you had the tomato salad. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's, it's made it with was, an ajo blanco, which a lot of people even think is fattening, but essentially it's it's an almond sauce. It just it looks creamy, but right. it's it's it's. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was like there's a cream here. There's something going on that it, there's some sort. No, it was great. It, right. it tasted great, and it was uh, and yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, so that part we know we're doing well. Um, but of course, you know, since we were opening up in this spirit of community, we hired people that we knew, people that we love, people that love this society. And uh, if I underestimated something in this early soft opening. It was just how incredibly important services in New York City. Now, I live around the corner and I raised three kids in a very small apartment. And I think one of the reasons we love staying here is because we really like to go out to eat. We, you know, it's one of the nice things about living in Manhattan is that you can find all different types of restaurants, different price ranges, and enjoy yourself. Um, But generally, for me, if the food is good and the price is right and the service is with a smile and Mm -hmm. they feel like they want to be there, I'm happy. Yeah. 
But you know what? Not everybody is. <laughs> Some people are like, if that, you know, if you didn't come and ask them for a refill of their wine exactly when they wanted it, or you didn't remove a plate, and you know, they're right too. So these are lessons that we're learning. And so now we are, a lot of our, of our volunteers who maybe didn't have experience, we are going through a lot of training now. Right. And again, even the people who are training us are people in our community that are donating their time for free. Right. What have been some of your favorite moments in the restaurant? I think we've been pleasantly surprised with how many people are showing up. So yesterday, for example, was the first night that we actually had a line to get in. Okay. And again, so I know it's Thursday night too, so it's not even like a right. And and um, since I live around the corner, I came, you know, running around, and um, it really brings a lot of joy um, to see people genuinely happy in a community atmosphere. Right. That part has been incredibly reward, rewarding. Um, if I were to give a lesson to other nonprofits trying to open up a restaurant, it would clearly be this: make it crystal clear that a nonprofit with no motive to get rich and based on you know the backs of volunteers and people who really believe in community are running your restaurant because what we have found and of course remember because our service and everything's not quite perfect yet and there's things that still need to go that um, when people think that this is a private enterprise um, they're much, much more critical. But when they realize that we are a nonprofit, things change right away. They're right. willing to forgive mistakes. They're willing to come back for a second chance if maybe it wasn't so great the first one. And um, so, yeah, really, really promote the fact that you are a nonprofit. So we even changed our menu. So we're now at menu 1.3. <laughs> so I think every week we, we have changes to it. And this one now very clearly states that welcome to La Nationale, and we explain the the point behind the the project and the community nature of it. Well, I would take that as a compliment because if I, I knew I walked in knowing it was a nonprofit because I'd seen it online, I guess you're running it well enough that people wouldn't realize you don't look like a nonprofit if that makes sense. Like it's really uh, that's great. That's it's a sharp restaurant. That's uh, so the fact that you have to tell people, hey, we're a nonprofit, means. You must be doing something right. Well, I'll give you a little anecdote, Bill, of what it was like for us. So the we are a 150-year-old institution, and a lot of Americans, especially Americans who hadn't visited Spain ever, would come into the old restaurant. The old restaurant was old school. I am telling you, it was all like dark wood. It was musty. It had walls everywhere instead of it being opened. You had to walk down a corridor that was at least 30 feet even before you entered the restaurant, a very dark corridor. I would see people that would walk in who maybe didn't know, and they would walk in and walk right out because they didn't know where the restaurant was. It just looked too intimidating to even bother walking down that corridor. But people who knew it loved it. Right. Because it was so old school. And I get that. Right. And we were extremely mindful of that. It, because it lent a certain sort of authenticity. Sure. Um, and the food was always good. Of course, even when Lolo ran it, the food was great. Um, so when we decided to close now, so that said, the Americans would come in and they generally would really like it and they would they'd consider it their home away from home here, especially wanting to, to experience the Spanish food. But Spaniards, meanwhile, would walk in and, you know, nine out of ten would be like, this place looks terrible. <laughs> and if this represents Spain, this must not even be Franco Spain, pre-Franco Spain. <laughs> they were like, that's the only thing I could think of. So... Um, 
we had to when we you know decided to come up with the design we really needed to find a way to represent modern Spain but still with a nod to the 150 year old tradition of the society and in August for example we are putting up a absolutely gorgeous museum quality timeline on the wall when you first walk in okay. that explains the 150 year old history of the society and a little bit of, of, of Spanish immigration so um, here to the United States right cool tell me about the the chefs you kind of mentioned them a little bit tell me about the chefs and uh, kind of what their specialties are so this particular group from came from Valencia and I can tell you how we got them uh, remember we had a lot of people that were recommending chefs to us that's for sure right um, but we have a member who is married to the ex-CEO of AIG. Okay. And they have traveled the world. They've seen everything. They have um, experienced just about every restaurant worthwhile in the world. And I'll never forget a conversation I had with her when I was telling her that I was looking for chefs. She said, Robert, I... My husband and I will never forget a meal that we had in this tiny town in Valencia. And it was a little, almost a, a bar that had been there for 80 years. But the chef was so passionate and made such original cuisine, and it was such a popular place for, for people to know, um, that, goodness, you know, Robert, I, I mean, I don't really know the guy, she told, she told me, but I do know someone that does. Um, let me reach out. And next thing you know, that particular chef who had never left Spain, hardly even left his area, Valencia, was now leading our restaurant downstairs. So he came along with uh, three other great professionals who, own, who all have successful restaurants in Valencia. Right. And they all managed to figure out a way where they can leave their restaurant in the hands of others for periods of time. Some came for a few months, some came for other. And we have... Um, uh, Francisco Paco, who is going to be here for the, uh, the full year of sponsoring this visa. And they've been great. Right. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been uh, this has been really interesting. Thank you for taking a few minutes. And, uh, uh, and thank you, Bill, because I know that, uh, you know, we need to know that people like you are in our corners doing important work like this. So thank you. Right. You're welcome. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. JP, you getting hungry yet? <laughs> Very much so. I'm looking forward to having a meal down, down over at La Nacional as quickly as possible. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting place. And it's a, and I was I was being honest, like you would not know when you walked in that you walked into a nonprofit. Like you, unless they said something to you, the place looks amazing. It just, it looks like a typical, like real um, modern New York City restaurant. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm excited to go, uh, but... More broadly, it what what impresses me not just the not just the is it just the quality of the restaurant, but the fact that this um, nonprofit's been around for 150 years, yeah. and I think the longevity of the nonprofit as well as the restaurant speak to how important it is that 
nonprofits are extremely creative about how they fundraise and sustain themselves. But clearly, you know, obviously the needs of immigrants in New York City specifically, but in the country in general, um, are still present. And in order to continue, those needs will continue to need to be met. Um, and so the fact that this place has been flexible enough to and creative enough to continue to meet those needs, regardless of how they change generation over generation, is extremely impressive. And as you started off with the quality of the restaurant is, I think, perfect evidence of that. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it's a slice of old New York because, but he mentioned, New York used to have uh, lots of uh, benevolent societies for all the different countries of origin. And so, uh, amazing food. And I love the story of the finding the chefs, you know, these, mm-hmm. these guys in this kind of corner. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of Spain, yeah, it's it's that that's that's really cool, and you know, not only just like finding the chefs in the corner of Spain. One 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 thing I just wanted to mention too is kind of like the significance of not just the people who are working for the institution and for the restaurant, but he mentioned that the board is comprised of people who are, mm-hmm. you, you know. Um, have either themselves are immigrants or Spanish speaking, but clearly can empathize with the experience of the people that they're trying to serve because they're connected to it themselves. And I think, you know, the best nonprofit boards, the best nonprofits are ones who are run by people who are connected to the experience of the people who they serve. Awesome. So I wanted to actually take a second now to do a little advertising. Sure. Do you know about uh, this event that we're doing next week? Uh, only because you have your uh, large social media <laughs> present. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you not using the word annoying. And using um, but yeah, so if you're if you're listening to this the first time, if you're just getting turned on to Nonprofit Tangent, uh, I have an event next week where um, all of the people on today's episode have told me that they would be there. So if you like the people that you heard today in the episode, come down to the uh, event and it will be during the United Nations General Assembly week and it will be not too far from the General Assembly and it will have 90 set up. Is 90s hip hop the golden age of hip hop? Uh, I don't know if I would call it the golden age, but it's definitely uh, an age that my heart and my ears (laughs) are near and dear to. (laughs) Uh, I think I called it today the golden age at some point, so I don't know if that's wrong or right. If you go to Eventbrite and you put in the promo code FAT, P-H-A-T, you will get a discount on tickets. Address. Oh, I should, yeah. Are you pointing out that I should actually give details about this event? <laughs> yes, let them know what, oh, that's when good, and where it's right. going to be. All right, I knew, you, I knew bringing you on board would be a good thing. Yeah, so it's uh, it's going to be Tuesday, September 18th. Uh, it's actually, it says 7 to 9 on the flyer, but I've actually widened the hours to be 6.30 to 9.30. And uh, there will be some guided networking, some uh, open networking. So I'm hoping there will be a lot of good connections made. And so come out and make some of your own good connections. How do, we really find nice this, how do we find this on social media? Uh, thank you. Yes, good question. This is on Facebook. Um, you can also go to www.nonprofittangent/events. Very good. All right, so let's move on to our final episode. And this is an organization um, that I have personally known for a little while, and it's been exciting to see them grow. So it's called the Impact Network. Now, their annual, big annual fundraiser is called Chefs for Impact which assembles an all-star team of chefs and cooks from across New York City. They come together to one place, and it's a, they always have some other cool things happening as well in addition to the dinner. So this is the Impact Network.
So I'm here with Katie Kerr, who is the Vice President of External Relations with the Impact Network. And we're going to talk about Chefs for Impact. What is Impact Network? What, do you, what does the Impact Network do? Great. So Impact Network, we believe that every child deserves access to a quality education. And we currently have over 40 schools in rural Zambia serving over 6,000 students. And what we do is we pair teachers with tablets and coaching to make that possible. Right. Okay, cool. So how does that connect with, uh, <laughs> with chefs, the chefs with in New York City? Event. <laughs> yeah, so our first event was eight years ago, so 2011. Um, we had about 50 people then, and what we did is we bring in various chefs from New York City. They each prepare a course. Back then we had probably six different courses, but we've moved to a model since we have more people. About 250 people come to our event now. So we still have about six to eight chefs from the New York City area, and they'll either take part in our reception, so they're preparing past appetizers, or then we have a three-course seated dinner. So three of our chefs work on that part. Right. Cool. And you, you, you ran chefs last year, right? Yes. Yeah, so last year was my first year with Impact Network. So this is my first. So now I'm on my second year, but right. I started about three months before the event. So right. it was start with fire. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it could be your feet better, right. you know. You know. Uh, oh, it must feel much better to have a few yeah, so now, now I before you Now I know do. a little more what, what I'm doing. Right. So uh, very excited for this year, especially seeing some things we did last year, and you can always improve on things. Right. I can also speak about like the organization as a whole because we've had some chefs that have been with us for five, six years. So Chef Mark Hennigan, Chef Eric Simeon, who will be back this year, they've been with us since the beginning. So right. it's great to have those chefs that come back each year because they know the event. They kind of act as our, our leaders and help every corral everybody and the new people. Right. Um, so love their food. What do they cook for this? What are their specialties? Or do they cook something different every year? So yeah, last, so that's the thing. Each year they do something different and we work with them to try to craft a menu each year. So for instance, if we find out someone's making fish, we'll work with someone else to do a meat course and then the third person might do pasta or chicken or something like that. So we have a very complete menu. Um, one of the favorites is the gooey cakes that we had for several years. So that's actually dessert <laughs> that we had um, for several years. And those are, those are definitely a fan favorite and right. I, I enjoyed that as well. Right, cool. What is a gooey cake? Um, a gooey cake is something that originated from St. Louis, uh, and the guy that we worked with, Matt Swanston, he has a company, Gooey & Co, and they make, he had an idea, I think, coming from that area to start that business. So, um, I don't, it's a, just a wonderful tasting cake <laughs> that is in little squares. Um, it's kind of got like a soft inside and a, a hard outside. Cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, one of my because I got a chance to, to volunteer a for a couple of these events, and it's it's so much fun seeing the kitchen, right? Like, yeah. all, it's not it's one thing to just have like a chef who's kind of running their kitchen, but you've got like uh, you know several chefs all kind of sharing the same kitchen space. Yeah. Um, and it's so fun to kind of see them like almost like you know one finishes up and they kind of tap out and then the next one jumps right, in right. and stuff. It's, it's funny because as you said, like these chefs are used to being in their own restaurants. So we're throwing them in a new environment with new people to work with, with new tools. And so it's really great just to see everybody come together and the teamwork. I mean, we've had years where we didn't even have a proper kitchen where we had to rent all the equipment and just they kind of go with the flow because they know it's for a great cause and get excited and 
somehow make it all come together. Right, yeah, I don't think you would ever know, like, it's really organized chaos, but in like, a really good way and a really good vibe. Uh, but you, I don't think I ever, you wouldn't notice it like when you're sitting at the table. Right. Like, there's so much cool stuff happening. Of, yeah, like, people weaving in and out of each other. And exactly. So the, you know, one of my favorite things about the event is it's actually so much more than food. And you were just telling me about a really cool thing they did last year. But it was, it was like the, I don't want to say gimmick because that cheapens it in a little way. But right. Like, a, like the fun twist or like fun additional activity. Right. So we like to try to have something for our guests to see because you know, uh, Reshmar, executive director, and myself, we'll go to Zambia. So we get to meet our students, our teachers, our staff, our students, and see what it's really like. So in 2016, we did a VR video to try to bring all of our guests to Zambia. Um, so that was our 2016 theme. So that was like, um, everyone could take their phones, put it into a thing, right? It was a, yeah, a little 3D viewer that everyone got, and it was an app that was downloaded ahead of time and you could put it on and you were kind of brought into the life of this girl in Zambia. She started her day and went to school. Um, and so last year we wanted to make sure to use that, that video again. So we set up a classroom. Um, and so one area of the event space, we had a classroom with a chalkboard where people could write messages to our students. We had a couple of the tablets that we use in our classrooms and then we had the, the viewers. And so people again were able, they didn't see it the year before, if they were new guests, were able to experience that as well. So they, you had like a kind of a replica classroom of the, um, from Zambia yes. in this event with, with you know. Right, as best as we could. We had, we had a couple desks that we rented. <laughs> you know, we got a U-Haul a few days before and went to some stage prop stores and got blackboards and desks right. um, and then the tablets. So as close as we can make it with what the resources we had here. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. So, um, yeah, you, there's always some fun thing in addition to the dinner. So do you have anything planned for this upcoming? Yes, this year we're thinking about working on a superhero type theme. Um, our event's October 23rd, so it's a week before Halloween. So we're hoping to incorporate some fun props so people can take pictures and kind of going with the message that you can be an everyday superhero by participating in, in the Impact Network Chefs for Impact dinner because all the proceeds do go to support our schools. And we just had a videographer there taking, uh, making videos. We had a photographer there. We had some different capes that we had on the students. So to be continued, to be revealed a little bit further down sure, the line, sure. I don't want to give away, right. give everything away today. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, exactly, a bit of an appetizer. But it, yeah, it should be fun, I think. All right, cool. Yeah. Oh, uh, I did want to ask, the, a couple of years ago, at least, it was a, the guy who was doing the sort of live auction was really fun. Is uh -huh. it the same guy? Yeah, Lucas Hunt. So, so he, wear like a, he wears like a yes, suit. Yeah, and a nice a, suit. Oh man, he's like one of the best. Yes, uh, so Lucas Hunt is our auctioneer. This will be his third year with us, and he actually went to our schools in February. Oh, so wow. we're so excited to have him again this year because he's been there, he's seen the schools, he's met the students, he knows our staff and teachers now. Right, right. right. Um, so just excited how he kind of brings that energy and story along um, right. through the event. Oh, cool. And he's, he's great to work with because he helps us like draft the evening and when we should do specific things. So. Right. Um, how, how much does it cost to, for, to educate a uh, Zambian student for one month? We're, our model is less than $5 a month. Right. So we're able to provide you know, supplies, the tablet, teacher salary, everything for less than $5 a month. Wow, wow, that's amazing. So it's so when you start to do the math about it, like, okay, you know, someone spends this, you know, 
whatever, $100 on something. Like right. The amount of education they just provided for $100 is amazing. Exactly. We've done both things before, like a $5 Friday, where you think about like spending $5 on a coffee, right? Or the, what you spend on a pizza or um, snack somewhere, you know? And for that, you can send a kid to school for a month. And that's exciting to us. And that's what we try to like let people know. Because just by people showing up to the event, you know, they're really helping contribute to this mission and helping kids go to school that wouldn't have a chance otherwise. That's cool. That's cool. It's such a great together. event. Like it really is amazing. Because I mean, obviously the big, it's really a big foodie event. You get a chance. It's not just one chef that you get a chance to sample a whole bunch of different chefs from all, you have everything from like pastry chefs, right? Right, right. Different, different culinary, you know, backgrounds all coming together and you get to sample a whole bunch of them in one night. Plus you have all these other things going on. Yeah. It's such a cool event. Well, yeah, actually, so that brings up a good point. So do you, how much coordination um, happens in the kitchen beforehand? Like, is there like, is it like a planning out a football play where there's like X's and O's on a chalkboard somewhere or where you're like doing something We like try, that? but they also have their own jobs and like, you know, chef is a very busy lifestyle at a time. You know, you're maybe working late hours into the morning. And so we definitely meet with everyone at least once, um, sometimes twice, and then we'll coordinate via text messages or emails, we share with everyone what they're making, you know, what time to be there that day, available to answer any questions, letting them know even what sort of plates are available, what sort of serving trays are available. Right. Um, I think that was definitely new for me last year. Like, I didn't even think, you know, people were like, okay, well, you know, what's, what's the plate I'll have or what's the serving tray? And some chefs are very much like, oh, I'll use whatever you have. And then some chefs are very, they have an idea for what their food should be served on. And so they'll be like, oh, is this or this available? Um, right. Like what kind so, of diameter? Like yeah. Like, are there wood trays or silver trays or glass bowls? Um, what's available in the kitchen? Do you have a fryer? And mm. So that was my first time thinking about those <laughs> sort of things. Like I had a wedding, but I never really thought about, you know, that was probably the prior, one of the bigger events I was part of, but never. Right. Kind of thought about it down to like a 10 inch round and like i was getting pictures of plates and figuring right. it all out right. wow. okay <laughs> cool well let me ask this um give me maybe one highlight of last year's event can you give me one memorable moment uh from from last year yeah i think one of the most memorable moments for me was our video that we made that was one of my first times helping to make one of these sort of videos and what we did is we had someone there just film it on a cell phone and so it was just very interesting to see how something that low hand you know kind of hands off one of our interns with a cell phone could turn into such like a touching great product and so we interviewed a lot of the students and had them talk about what they wanted to be when they grew up and just you know, ended with like a thank you to everyone that was in the room. Right. Um, and so that was just a highlight for me and all the participation and people getting really excited afterwards. So we, you know, we'd play a video and then do the live appeal or the auction near what asked for various donations and just, you know, seeing everyone really touched and excited. Right. Um, made oh, for nice. made for a highlight. Sure <laughs> is. Okay, cool. And the food, of course, I think. Uh, <laughs> As you know, I can't say I ate every course because we're kind of running. Sure, we're running. Yeah, I, was even, I actually was thinking about that. We're, I don't even know if you got yeah, yeah, we're running up and down, but we, we do have a seat, so we got to sit down, and there was like sea bass um, that somebody made last year that was really good. Right. Um, so, yeah, 
the food is definitely a highlight too, and the dessert, the gooey cake that I, gooey I did, cake. I definitely had that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, uh, thank you for taking some time to, to tell me about the event and talk to me. Great. And if anyone's interested, it's October 23rd at the Bowery Hotel this Got year. Perfect. So we have tickets on sale now. Awesome. Oh, really? Right. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I was so focused because this is a food episode. I was really focused on this food event that they do. That I don't know that it, um, how amazing the organization is on the ground in Africa. How much that came across, you can tell me. But uh, the work, the work that they do, they bring a lot of technology to uh, to rural school schools throughout Zambia. Um, you know these uh, sort of iPad things. Uh, they support teachers there, and what they're able to do, um, like I said, for for five dollars is uh, uh, it's unbelievable and they're really changing the landscape the educational landscape in the country it's uh um i really recommend people fill in the gaps of my interview by going out and doing some of their own research and how great the impact network is yeah it's 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 really exciting the fact that you know you can be in here be in new york and kind of meet this need for education in a country in Africa to meet the needs of all these kids in Africa or specifically rather in, in Zambia by providing teachers and students with access to technology like tablets and iPads um, number one as an educator I can say that they're great learning tools but number two you know it provides students with an opportunity to access and begin using begin using and practicing with the type of technology they might likely require uh, as adults, as a professionals, and you know, professional workplace experiences. So that's awesome. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, a lot of the reasons that they rely on technology is because you know uh, how much how much as a teacher do you rely on a copy machine? Right, <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Copy machine breaks down; it's the worst morning ever. Right, <laughs> it's like us. you have to redo everything, and right. and, and they don't have. They don't have copy machines, so a lot of times that electronics can can act like that. They were, um, Reshma, who is the executive director of the organization, was telling me one time, I think, that they would write a question on the board. This is for, I think, a test, right? Mm -hmm. Write a question, a math question on the board. All the students would answer it, and then they'd erase that question, and then write the next question, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's that's where, where, the, where they are technology-wise, so bringing all these electronics and uh, is, is um, it's amazing, and, and they, the... the the results are, are also uh, fantastic. I don't have them in front of me, but I, I do recommend everyone check out the Impact Network. And they have a. And I would also say that so the other side of this, to bring it back to the food side, is um, it's one of the more unique fundraising events that I've seen or experienced. Like it's no, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, and just broadly, you know, if you're if you're a nonprofit, you know, figuring out where you're going to get the resources and funds and revenue that you need in order to meet the net carry out the mission um is so much of your job you know yeah. um get, getting one and so 
you have to be resourceful. And so if you're in New York, it makes so much sense that you're going to use your access to chef and foods to kind of fund the educational experience that you feel um, the students in Zambia need and deserve. Um, and so, yeah, like we're in New York, um, you know, like a previous guest mentioned, you know, we, we have access to great restaurants, we like going out to eat um, and kind of uh, taking advantage of that and using that as a way of fundraising, I think is um, creative specifically for impact network, but demonstrates more broadly how nonprofits need to be creative in order to get revenue that they need to mm-hmm. fund their mission. Yeah, and I think I would imagine if, I, you know, doing a nonprofit, you know, you want to really just jump into your to your mission. And I think uh, I've never been to a poorly run uh, fundraiser. All fundraisers are always interesting, but there also can be a tendency for some fundraisers to be a little dry, mm-hmm. be a little bit, uh, do some presentations, you have a nice dinner at, an, at, a, at a thing, and then, you know, it's a cocktail hour, right? And they, there can be a little cookie cutter. The fact that they do something they do really unique and interesting things the VR stuff that they did a couple of years ago that I got to experience was was awesome because you really felt that moment that VR kind of thing you're on the uh, it was a three-dimensional camera or not three-dimensional 360 camera mm-hmm. and you're on the you're on the planes you're in the schools and you get a real sense of, of what it was like there so um, it's just it's a really special event and I uh, so I'm glad that it's been successful and they keep doing it yeah. Um, were you going to say something? No, I mean, uh, just just to, just to, just to add on, I just think you can't understate the value of you know knowing who your audience that is that you're targeting, who you wish to help support, whoever, whatever your whatever your mission is, and then connecting that audience to the beneficiaries uh, of that service or that need that you're meeting. It's it's tremendously impactful and the more creative and more fun you can be you know attracting that audience um and connecting them to that to the people mm-hmm. getting the services yeah. the the better supported you'll be yeah that's a good point because i think they do a really good job of doing that of, of really connecting you know your dinner and why you're there and getting the connected to the mission and, and how your money is being used yeah um awesome well uh i want to start winding things down um First off, just another uh, plug for the uh, uh, nonprofit mixtape, 90s Night and Networking, that we've got happening next week on the 18th of September, 2018, if you happen to be listening mm-hmm. to this at another year. Uh, but um, I also wanted to send a shout out to Building Beats, who I interviewed, uh, Fee Family Executive Director, last week. They sent some music my way that we were able to put between segments, so I really, really appreciate them. Please uh, visit the website and the posting on uh, nonprofittangent.com to learn a little bit more about the musicians that were featured in this episode. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's really good. It is. It's an excellent <laughs> episode. I was very happy with the way that came out. And uh, um, and I'm very happy with the, with my my co-host today. Thank you, JP, for uh, for joining me, coming all the way to Manhattan on a cold, rainy day. Yeah. Bill, it was a pleasure. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Thanks for having me to be part of this conversation. Very good. And good luck this school year. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> all right. That's it.